podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Hari is a journalist and writer who has written many books on the topics of depression and the war on drugs. He talks about addiction and how addiction intervention by family members is usually conducted. Get an addict, all the people in their life, gather them together, confront them with what they're doing. And they say, if you don't shape up, we are going to cut you off. So what they do is that they take the connection to the addict and they threaten it. They make it contingent on the addict behaving the way they want. Johan suggests we use a different approach. It's to say to the addicts in our lives that we want to deepen the connection with them. It's to say to them, I love you, whether you're using or you're not. I love you, whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I will come and sit with you because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. He ends with a profound message. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Today, my conversation is with Tommy Evans. Thomas J. Evans is a former union president and AA sponsor for over 30 years. He has struggled with alcoholism for many years of his life before he found help in the AA program to begin his journey of recovery. Today, Tommy gives his support, wisdom, and strength to those who walk into the AA rooms such as he did. His life has been marked by tragedies. He lost his son and his daughter in car accidents one year apart from one another. He also lost his wife to cancer. Tommy's message is simple, yet wise and spiritual. No matter what happens in our lives, we must go on with the strength given by our higher power. Here is the interview with Tommy Evans.
In your own words, who is Tommy Evans? In my own words, I guess would describe myself as white Anglo-Saxon American boy that was, you know, uh, born in the United States, served in, in the military, the Navy, you know, stepped up to uh, serve my country. Uh, somebody who, you know, came up the hard way and there was some success in my life and some failures like everybody else. But, you know, all in all, you know, uh, I would describe myself as, you know, somebody who's been fortunate in, in some aspects and somebody who's had his uh, tragedies. But as all, I've uh, always turned around and bounced back and went on with my life the way it was supposed to. Great. Thank you. In addiction, we mistake numbness for peace indulgence for abundance, gratification for fulfillment, intensity for intimacy, control for safety, perfection for competence. I found this on marinc.com, M-A-R-R. Mar is an addiction treatment center in Georgia. Tommy, what is your experience with addiction? Well, my experience with addiction because, you know, uh, I'm an alcoholic and I came into the program around 1972. And my experience with addiction is, is looking that, you know, I had to come and look at the, uh, the disease concept of the issue of alcoholism. I had to look at the powerlessness that I had over alcohol. And I had to learn one thing also about it, about addiction. It's a very, you know, the addiction, the booze, the alcohol or the drug is just a substance. The disease and the concept of addiction is between our two ears. It's in our mind. So you would say that it's um, mind disease. More mental. More mental than physical. Yes. What is your exact definition of addiction? Let me see. My exact definition of addiction would be looking at something you have no concept of, but yet doing the same thing over and over again, looking for different results. Which is the same definition of insanity. Yes. Why and when did you join the AA program? Actually, I joined the AA program because I had a brother-in-law that worked with me in the breweries, and uh, he was, you know, an alcoholic. And he wound up in the D4 program out there in Central Isop State Hospital. And I seen a change in him. And uh, I guess if you really want to look at it, it was curiosity because I seen a change in how he changed into a, a different person after about a year. And, you know, he must have had enough program under his belt because when I asked him, what did they tell you at this point? And he said to me, why don't you come and find out for yourself? Yeah. I said, but wait a minute, you're the alcoholic. He said, well, maybe possibly you are too. Mm -hmm. He says, because we drink similar and a lot of the things that we experienced were similar. So I think I'd actually say it was, you know, why and when did I join AA? It was, 
I would say first was uh, out of curiosity. Second of all, when I really went to the program and jumped into the program two feet was after my first detox because I was kind of, I kind of reached the bottom that I knew there was no possible way on my own that I could stop, stop my drinking. I needed the help of the program. The big book is one of the best selling books of all time. Bill W. was a successful businessman who lost his career due to his use of alcohol. He joined a spiritual movement group, the Oxford Group, that had its roots in Christianity and was very influential in the early development of AA. It was there that he met the other co-founder of AA, Dr. Bob. The main goal of the book is to get individuals to commit to a specific program of recovery for alcoholism that includes embracing the notion of a higher power. What is the higher power to you? Uh, my higher power is a, is a spiritual uh, concept of what I choose to call my God. Can you describe what, is, what does it feel like, the connection with God? What do you call God? It's very simple for me. It's a, it's a connection that's like, I connect with my higher power. I call it my higher power. The same way I do I, as I connect with people in the program. I talk to my higher power just like I talk to any individual. I don't put him on a pedestal. I don't make him like he's, you know, the, the, the God Almighty. I look at my higher power that he is a, a spiritual person who's there just like God, and he's gives me my direction. He don't, he don't solve my problems. He don't give me nothing in life that I'm not ready to earn for myself. He gives me the willpower to do it. Would you say that then God is in everyone? You see, you connect with the God that's in everyone. Well, I, you know, because I was brought up with Christianity, I believe there's God in some people, and I believe there's also the devil in some people. I believe that I believe in the concept, yes, of good and bad. Yes, I do, because you know, maybe not only with the program, but with kind of my age, I had to come to conclusion just with with my wisdom of what I've seen over the years. And it's very scary when you think about it. People are capable of anything. So what it is, you choose to connect with the God in people instead of the, the devil in people. That's what it is that helps you cope. cope well, it's, it, no, to see the spirituality that I learned in the program, it's not so much connecting with the God concept. It's connecting with the individual and the person and I relate more to the people who are alcoholics because we think the same. We can understand each other's way of thinking. Right. So I connect better with those people. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what helps. Um, that helps me maintain my sobriety. Yeah. It's a we program. It's not an I program. Yeah. You need the other people in the program to help you stay sober. Right. I love that. What is the difference of being a spiritual person and a religious person? I found out, to me, just to me, you know, I don't know if that's the, 
the truest concept of it. To me, a religious person, if you're practicing their way of religion, of what the religion they're in, whether it may be Catholicism, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, if you're following their way, then to them it's the right way. Right. Spirituality, you're not following anybody's concept. You're following your own concept of your higher power, yours, not somebody else's, not a formal religion. It's your concept of your higher power. Hmm. It sounds to me like then what it is, the individual is addressing his or her own needs, specific needs with that connection with God in his spirituality. Does it make sense to you? Well, it makes sense, but it's not specific. It's not a specific needs. You're, I'm looking at my spiritual uh, contact with my higher power. I'm not putting a label on it. I'm not putting a way of thinking that the church or whatever religion is telling me how to think. Right. I'm thinking with him exactly how I want to think of it with my higher power. And I feel free with that because it's like saying, I'm not following a form of religion. I'm following my contact with my higher power between me and him. Right. Nobody else needs to be in the mix, just me and my higher power. And that connection gives you what you need to cope with addiction. You don't cope with addiction, <laughs> you know, because if it, that would be, it sounds so easy to cope. You don't cope with addiction. You have to, and that, the first thing they do when you surrender, you have to tolerate first. You have to tolerate your addiction, and then you have to turn around. You don't cope with it. You have to do something about it and thank God for the program of, of a Alcoholics Anonymous because that helps you cope with your addiction. The first concept they give you when you come into the program because, you know, it's very hard to look at and say, okay, I'm going to be, as soon as you walk into the program, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking for the rest of my life. No. The first concept they give you and they try to tell you, can you stop drinking for one day? Okay, you start do it a day at a time. And then if you start that way, days go from weeks, weeks go into months, and months go into years if you're following the program. But the thing is, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. There's no possible way that you're going to, you know, they haven't come up with a cure, they haven't come up with a pill. They've, you can arrest the disease. You can arrest the disease, but put it this way, um, there's a, a caption in the big book from the beginning that I used to argue with all the time, a lot of the old timers. And it says, the first 100 recovered alcoholics. I don't ever see you being recovered. Because for me, when you use that word, recovered means I'm, I'm, I'm cured of it. And I can go back out and drink. I look at the concept of the program, I'm recovering. I'm going to be recovering for the rest of my life. Like I said, they know me around the program. They knew me in New York. They know me down here. My name is Tommy. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I'm here because I don't want to die drunk. Why do I say that? Because with the help of the program, I can achieve that. 
I just don't want to die drunk. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody or it's going to make me better than anybody. I am going to die an alcoholic because I am an alcoholic. But I don't want to die a drunken alcoholic. I want to die a sober alcoholic. And if I can do that, then I cannot say I achieved what the program has given me. And I'm actually paying back the program for the thing that they gave me of my sobriety. I love that concept with the AA that an alcoholic once has understood how the disease is affecting him or her in his life. They will help others. They will keep helping others. And that helps them to keep yeah. them sober. That's the most beautiful thing. Well, that's one of the concepts of the program. The concept, if you want to keep your sobriety, you got to give it away. And what are they done? You're helping another alcoholic, a newcomer. You know, it's like some people get annoyed about it. They say, because it ain't so. I do believe, and I've been around quite a few 24 hours in the program. I do believe the most important person coming into the room is a newcomer. Because the newcomer keeps reminding you us all the time is of what's back out there if you want to go back out and pick up another drink. It's still out there waiting for you. And, you know, and our responsibility in our traditions states that we must help the still sick and suffering who's coming into the program. Yeah. That, to me, sounds really spiritual. Right. Well, That's that is part of the spiritual of, yeah. thing. Spirituality. And they also tell you, if you don't, con if you don't, it, it takes a little time. If you don't grasp sooner or later the spiritual concept of the program, you won't stay so. So the last step is really important, the 12. Right. You have to get into the spiritual concept of the program because it's the spiritual part of the program, which the basis is. It's like you, you uh, whoever wrote this thing is, is kind of a little misinformed about the Oxford group. Right. The Oxford group, Bill W. was in it, but he met Dr. Bob, not in the Oxford group. He met Dr. Bob in, um, where was it? Uh, True Sister Ignatius in Akron, Ohio. Oh, before the Oxford group? After the Oxford After. group. The Oxford group was a thing that, that would have the Christianity yeah. concept of the program, but the program wasn't even indicted into that. But he met Dr. Bob, who was really, when you think about it, Dr. Bob, and when he got with Bill Wilson in, in, uh, in Akron, Ohio, that's when they first met. What happened is, is uh, Bill Wilson went to Akron because he was doing some kind of work or something, there, and he was getting the urge to drink. And some of them gave him Dr. Bob's number. And he talked to Dr. Bob, and that's how they first got together. And that's how they, they started AA. Yeah. Was that, you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. Yes. They started AA. You obviously agree that once uh, an alcoholic start with the program, they should continue for the rest of their lives. Oh, not that they have to. Uh, There's no possible, I've seen it too many times that people who, who's had long-term sobriety gave up on the program and thought that they could go about their life without the program, and eventually they pick up a drink. 
without the program, you, you will pick up a drink. Some might get away with six months. Some might get away with six years. But I've seen it. It's a, you know, it's like, it's almost like a pattern. People who will go away from the program, what do they got in long-term sobriety? There has been a few that didn't pick up a drink, but the, in the multitude of the thing, it's a very dangerous thing. If you go away from your program, what do you got? 50 days or 50 years. If you stay away from the program long enough, eventually you're going to pick up a drink. Wow. Have you stayed away from the program? I, yes, I have. I, I've had long-term sobriety and went back out uh, due to some tragedies in my life, losing a son, losing a daughter. And uh, the pattern never changes. It's the way the way the program we get the program is the way we take it back. It's physically, mentally, and spiritually. When I physically turn my back on a program and start not going to the program, to the program itself, to the rooms, the sick thinking comes back because I'm left to my own devices as an alcoholic. The mm -hmm. sick thinking comes back. Soon as the sick thinking comes back, right behind that comes the compulsion. And when a compulsion gets on us, it's like pressing the red button. I'm a missile. I'm going. And once I pick up the first drink, it's all over. I only drink one way. I only drink to go into a blackout because I don't have to care and I don't have to feel. I don't have to deal with my feelings. And that's uh, probably the reason why so many people turn into uh, drugs and all kinds of drugs, recreational drugs. Well, a drug is a drug is a drug, but it, it's a drug of choice. You know, another thing they tell us in the program, the old timers told us when they come around, uh, clean and sober means clean and sober. Just because you're an alcoholic, that don't mean you can pick up Coke or pot because what it is, uh, like I said, drug is a drug. It's going to bring you back to your drug of choice, whatever your drug of choice is. If you're an addict and you pick up alcohol, the alcohol is going to bring you back to your drug of choice. So when they say clean and sober, they mean clean and sober. That means no booze, no drugs, no pills, no pot, clean and sober means clean and sober. You can't put a substance into your body that's going to, uh, you know, trigger your mind to, to lead you back to your disease. Right. Everything that you look at, whether it's a drug or an alcohol, it's a gateway drug. You know, and they say the marijuana maintenance, oh, I'm only smoking pot. But yeah, now but it's playing with your head and sooner or later you're going to go back to, to your drug of choice. Why do you think so many people choose to numb the pain with negative things, destructive substance or attachments, instead of um, doing positive things like uh, working, taking more responsibilities, perhaps could help, help um, having more spirituality, helping others? Well, the po is, what you're saying is a positive way, but when you think... Why do they go to alcohol? Because alcohol, number one, is legal. And there's a lot of bars out there and liquor stores, and, are, and it's available. The drugs is a little bit a difference. But or everything, what you're saying, it's available. It's easier. To right. Much easier for right. It's available rather than me say, okay, I'm going to sink 
my my all my efforts and all my energy into working, but I got to work forty hours a week. Where I can walk in a bar, and in a half an hour I'm whacked. You know what I mean? And drugs with the drugs, I, I'm I I take a hit or I do a couple lines or something. Now I'm oh I'm in euphoria again. So it's more available and, and it's less effort. Um, do you think alcohol should be illegal? Well, it, it's like you're saying the same with, with, with drugs. Should it all be illegal uh, stuff? Uh, like they're saying, it go, goes around the country now as far as the marijuana is concerned. They're talking about legalizing it in different you know states and everything. But do I think it should be... Uh, Alcohol should be, um, you said the word use, you know, illegal? No. Yes. I don't believe it should be illegal or you, they should stop it because then you, you're just punishing the people who are not alcoholics. No, we're just saying, okay, I have the, just because I'm an alcoholic, that don't mean I'm saying that the rest of the world should stop drinking. I'm an alcoholic. I have to deal with it because I have the disease of alcoholism. The person who don't have the disease and is a social drinker, why should they be punished? In my opinion, I don't think there's anything positive about alcohol. Alcohol is a toxin, so it won't help um, with anybody's health. They say it's toxic, okay? It's, uh, uh, but I forget the chemistry breakdown of it, whatever it is. Yes, it's supposed to be toxic. Yeah. But if you go back in history, before Christ, they were making wine. True. So, and what was wine? Was to get the alcohol content, and what it was. And a lot of people use the excuse back in the day they drank the wine and stuff because they couldn't drink the water. Ah, uh, the, the water, water was, contaminated. was contaminated. So they drank the wine and it made the wine. And so it was an excuse. So you know, mm -hmm. should it be, you know, wiped out over over the whole world? No, you don't think it's so. An, I don't think so because why can you, should you punish people, some people who can be a social drinker, have their one, two glasses of wine, and it don't affect them uh, like it does an alcoholic. And then you're saying even the same with the drugs. Should they exonerate all, all marijuana? Should they exonerate all kinds? And then if they, if they did that, then you would have to go get an operation on you without any anesthetic. It's a drug. Where did these drugs all come from? They use it for anesthetics to do operations and stuff. It's opiates. It's it's heroin, like heroin and everything else. So what will you do? You're going to tell a medical perfection, okay, we're going to exonerate those drugs, but then you're going to go get an operation or get your teeth pulled out without a medication? The way I see is that alcohol has a lot more destructive effects than benefits. Well, you know, there again, you see, you're just focusing on alcoholism. Is it is the benefit of alcohol, is it a destructive uh, thing to some things? But it, it, if you look at a lot of other things in, in life that's destructive and cause problems and cause harm, the automobile, more people die in auto accidents than they do for anything else. Than any other uh, any other day. So what are you gonna do? Eliminate all cars? No, because cars they are 
needed and um, they don't cause us, they could cause death, but mm-hmm. won't cause us to live a miserable life like alcohol does. Alcohol is, it causes a lot of problems. It, it causes the people who have the miserable life with alcohol are the alcoholics, not the people who ain't alcoholics. They're not having a miserable life. They are coping with it. They are not using the alcohol to solve all their problems. They're not using the alcohol to cope with life like an alcoholic does. So what are you trying to say now? Just because there's alcohol made in the world and there's alcoholics that now everybody else has got to give it up or they can't make it no more. That's what you're saying. Can't make it no more. Or is it destructive? I think there could be as much arguments as it's as much destructive as it is destructive. You know, they make beer, gives people jobs. You have breweries, distilleries, gives people jobs and stuff. Now you're looking at the at the big picture. Now, even the disease of alcoholism, the way I've seen it over the years, it's became a money-making operation. Oh, very much. And so has been the liquor industry, money-making operation. Now they're looking at the drug industry with the marijuana, money-making industry. Anything that makes money, people say it's good. Unfortunately, but a lot of times, like alcohol, for example, I think one thing, alcohol has a lot more destructive side effects because it's legal, um, also because of the alcoholic, when somebody becomes an alcoholic, will affect everyone else and their families, the environment. So it's not just them, they're affecting others too. Um, I also think that alcohol, it's the beginning, a lot of times, the first drug that people try and then they move on to others. It's about saying, just because I'm an alcoholic, and I cannot drink, and I can't cope with my disease and everything, why should I demand that there should be no more alcohol? Because it's not my concept to give it. My concept is if you're an alcoholic, I can help you, and we can. you don't supposed to drink. If you're not an alcoholic and you can handle it, that's on you. That's just what you are. But to try to say I'm gonna all alcohol should be illegal and eliminated, I don't see that because then what you're doing is you're being a hypocrite, saying because I'm an alcoholic, nobody's supposed to drink. Mm-hmm. It's like that I'm a smoker, you're not supposed to smoke. I, I gave it up. You supposed to give it up. Right. Okay. I can say it. Right. Maybe I should say it. But people people who who saying that, okay, because I'm that way, you should give it up. No. And right. it's my choice. Believe me, even when you're an alcoholic, it's my choice to stop drinking. Nobody else's choice. And you're, you're perfectly right when you said it's a family disease. Everybody gets affected by it. Um, yes, and that's the, the downside of it and the, the bad side effects of it. Everybody gets affected by it, too. But when you look into other things, what about the people who are not alcoholics, who own restaurants, who own bars, etc., and they're living... It's but it's good for them. It's good for them. They're not looking at the downside. They're not an alcoholic, so they don't have to face the the problem of alcoholism or even the same with drugs, with the drug addiction. You know, the thing with the drugs, like I said, drugs were invented for operations and stuff. Like, 
But what happened is people abused it. Once you pick up the drink and, you know, they use it for medical stuff and other things. But once you pick up and you use it, see, drugs, drugs, the difference between drugs and alcohol, drugs was not made to use recreational. Because they're highly addictive. Right. Where you can get away. Where alcohol was used for social, social uh, events and stuff. Where drugs was never, never used for social media. Even going back to centuries of the uh, opiate dens and everything, that was illegal. See? Because drugs was never instituted to be, you know, a social media because it will be abused. Drugs was originated for medical field. Right. For operations, for dental or whatever, you know. Because like I said, who wants an operation without getting anesthesia? You think you could take it? I don't think so. Right. And they cut you open. You know. No, true. I agree. Uh, alcohol, it's legal. That's one thing. Easy, really easy. And once people try alcohol, young people who never did before, they will find out pretty fast that numbs the pain. It makes them forget about their problems in life. Instead of addressing reality for what is, they just turn to alcohol more and more and more, and they become it's a crutch. addicts. They use it as a crutch for, to, right. to deal with their lives as substance. Or whatever it's a, today, it's the drugs and, and alcohol. It's a, it's a crutch. In other words, because they can't deal with, with life at life's terms. So what do they do? They reach for something else. And alcohol is available, and drugs now today is about. So, you know, they're reaching for something outside themselves right. to try to keep cope with reality. It would be interesting if they had, like, before they sold alcohol to somebody, they would ask them questions. How are you doing? How's your relationship with your parents? How is your job life, your career? And then if they, the answer is no for a lot of these questions, that they don't have a job, they don't have a good relationship with the parents, they had traumas in their childhood, whatever... Maybe the seller would say, no, you can't drink alcohol. Well, that, that would be that, interesting, right? Well, they, what they say, you know, you have to be of legal age even to drink. You have to be 18 or something. Because, again, I'll go back to the thing about freedom of choice. Once you're an adult and you become 18 and 21, you have the freedom of choice. Before that, when you're a minor, you don't have that. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's illegal to sell it to a minor. Right. But now, when you reach that, it's your choice. They're not going to ask you a whole bunch of questions of, you know, <laughs> how's your past, how's your mother, I how's like your that. father. They're not going to ask you that. They're going to just gonna say, here's your bottle, give me my $2. Oh. Again, it's about the money. Right. Anything about it, whether it's a liquor store, a bar or something or whatever, it's about, it's a business. And the business is there and alcohol is available. And that's the thing, Tamia. It's important to be responsible. Whatever you do for business, you should be responsible. Think about others, you know, care for others. Like if you sell alcohol, you know, just ask them questions to make sure that they are able to handle alcohol in a healthy way. Like you're saying, a lot of people, they, they can't do that. Social drinkers, they don't have problems. Yeah, but Valeria, 20 people just walked into my place. And I'm going to interview all 20 of them in one night because before they have a drink, I'd be there till t tomorrow, okay? It's too much. 
What about and, and, and first of all, and first of all, as you as a bar owner or a liquor store owner, you're not there to psychoanalyze them. You're there to give them a service. And what's the service you're there to give them? A drink or their bottle. That's what you're there for. Not to psychoanalyze them. No, I because again, nine out of ten times, what is a bartender or a psychoanalyst now? <laughs> no, just basic questions. Like if, if somebody comes, a young person comes to buy alcohol. Yeah, but if it's a young person, it's illegal. If they're underage, you're not supposed to send it to them. Now, when they get over that age, they're supposed to have the savvy to find out if they can handle the booze or not. Not you. We're just having okay. a conversation here. Like, you know, just try to imagine a world, societies, they are more conscious about health. We don't want to affect other people in a negative way well, because it's going to come back to us. Well, yes. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if everybody was perfect? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if we had no alcoholism, we had no drug addiction, we had no cancer, we had no heart disease? It'd be a wonderful world, but it ain't. It's not the reality. Let's go back to my program. I'm going to hit you with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the biggie is that last one, the wisdom to know the difference, what you can change and what you can't change. And sometimes it's a thin line. You know, some things I can change, and some things I can never change. It's beyond my scope as a human being to change it. I'm not the government. I can't change certain things with the government. I'm not a brain surgeon. I can't get everybody's brain functioning the right way. All I can do is, you know, I say with the program, that's why I love the program. I share my experience, strength, and hope. Anything else I don't know about. No, I'm not, not, not going to step there because I don't belong there, number one. Number two, I can help you with your alcoholism. I can help you with the program. But any other problems, you stuff you got, I'm not qualified. Sorry. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not your, uh, like I said, I'm not your uh, brain surgeon. You got to go to the brain, if you got a brain problem. Uh, even your medical problems, if you got cancer, you got to go to a doctor, you know. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not going to fix your marriage for yourself. I'm not, you know, anything else that you're having problems with, you know, that I'm not qualified for. And that's why the program works. I'm here to help you with your alcoholism and to try to, and all I can do even with that is share my experience, strength and hope, not somebody else's. If there's something that comes up uh, when I'm sponsoring somebody and I never experience it, I'm brutally honest with him. I tell him, I'm sorry. I can't really help you with that because I've never experienced that. How can I teach you something I never experienced? It's like the 12 steps. I didn't sponsor nobody until I went through the 12 steps because my sponsor told me, how can you give away something you ain't got? How can I explain to somebody about the 12 steps if I didn't do them? And I appreciate you talking to me and like expanding a bit more because mm -hmm. I know you have, um, you know a lot about the 12 steps. You're part of it for years and this is the, what you really. It's my life. Yeah, it's your life. And, and that's what you, 
you're comfortable talking about it. And I appreciate you expand elaborating for the sake of the podcast, because that's what I do. I try to make people think a little bit more beyond what they're living, what their lives right. are about. And um, also the program, when you look at the program, it's not just that one hour you go to the meetings. You have to get to maintain your sobriety. It, it, it's a living program. I have to practice when I leave that room after the hour of the meeting, practice these principles in all my affairs outside the room. The room, AA, is the boot camp. The war is outside after you close that door and leave there because that's where reality and where life is. The other 23 hours in the day that you have to, you have to practice these principles in all your affairs if you want to stay sober. We talked about wisdom, knowing um, that's really important that we know the difference of the things we can change and the things we cannot change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe we can suggest like healthy change when we see problems, even if it is really hard, like the government is behind a lot of the affairs that goes on in society. And that's really hard for an individual to suggest, to, to make any change. But if I believe that if one person decides to make a change in society for something that he or she sees that's not right, is not fair, or it's not healthy, I believe that they can. Think, you know, how can we help one another? How can we conduct our business that will make us money, but also will help other people um, in a healthy way? I appreciate the way you, you, you're looking at life, the way, the way it's caring, and uh, and you wish you could do that. But can you imagine going into a liquor store, and I guarantee you, nine out of ten people, and a guy goes in there or a woman goes in there for a bottle or whatever and says, you know, I want this, and you start asking a question. Well, I got to ask you a question. Are you kidding me? I'm only in here to pick up a What is it your business? You're here to sell me a bottle. Where is it your business to ask me my life? You're right in some aspect. And the only way, the, all these things that you just say with politics and everything, is it's got to start at the beginning. You have to educate your young. You would have to educate them through school. You would have to educate them of all the pitfalls. And they are doing that in some things. They bring it up in school about alcoholism and drug addiction. They're doing that today. But it has to be because, let's face it, we can't educate the whole world overnight. No, You're not going to be able to educate them. But it has to come through education. And in some ways, you're right. But the way that, that business, the way politics and everything is structured today, because they're not going to do it. The guy that owns the liquor store is interested. All I want to do is sell you the bottle and you give me my cash. The government is only interested in one thing. I don't care what you do as long as we get our taxes. As long as you pay your taxes, I don't care what you do. Just pay your taxes. That's the only way they can come after you is if you don't pay your taxes. They can't turn around, okay, because uh, I own a bar and I'm selling booze and I'm selling They can't put me in jail for that. What it is, Tommy, in, in, in a way, too, is just, you see, changing the way we think is really important. Like for alcoholism, you have to change your mind, the way you think, in order to improve your life and become somebody who is sober. Right. I think in a society that we live, too, is the same thing. Everything that's making us ill, 
we know there's a whole system. Everything's connected. The whole system is just sort of encouraging us to become diseased and unhealthy. So if people, if if we somehow, one by one, change the way of thinking, we care about how we make money. We care. It's not just about making money. We got to make money in a healthy way. What about if we had every liquor store would have like a huge sign with the serenity prayer, you know, like making people aware when they come in, they just read that. Wait a minute. Maybe alcohol is not what I need. Maybe I need to change, you know, make another. I, the idea is to make people reflect before they, you know, make certain decisions. Because maybe that's what's missing. They are not thinking. They are not aware of their own problems. And they want to they wanna numb the pain. And maybe yes, but even if you make them aware, there's going to be that percentage that's still going to do it whether they're aware or not. And if you're an alcoholic or an addict, you ain't even going to look at the sign. It'd be a wonderful world if everything was good. But it's not a wonderful world because everything ain't good. You're striving to get it out there yeah. where people get... But to turn around and say, put a big sign up there, the serenity <laughs> prayer like in that. a bar. It's yeah. like me when I was driving a brewery truck for 14 years and I'm an alcoholic. Okay? Did that, because I was an alcoholic, did so I just said, look, I can't deliver this beer? It was my job. It was my job. But I was an alcoholic still delivering it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Was I aware of it? Yes and no. But it was my job. Do you understand? It's like a cop says, I got to lock you up because it's my job. I don't want to. But the law says you broke the law. It's my job. The guy with the bar. I'm not here to give you uh, answer 20 questions. I'm here to give you a beer. Okay, yeah. I don't care what you did with your mother. It's none of my business. You know? Or if you got Mickey Mouse running through your head. That's your problem. Hey, mine. I'm here to serve you a beer. It'd be great if we all knew what everybody else was thinking. Well, you ask questions. We got to come from a place of consciousness. I'm not helping this young person, like a liquor store owner. I'm not helping him or her. It's an 18-year-old boy, girl. Because, you know, you are somebody like that who have cared your entire life for others. And you know how powerful that is, the connection, like the AA meetings. I'm taking out my pack of cigarettes. Look how many years it took them just with the cigarette smoking and all that thing, saying, yeah, they proved that it caused cancer, blah, 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 blah. But it still doesn't stop a lot of people from smoking. They're still smoking, including me. But I think for some people probably helped. They stopped. I heard um, it's it's less now after the com- the campaign. Well, TV, you know, if you look at anything anything in life today, certain foods you're not supposed to eat. You're not supposed to do this. But people still go ahead and do them. Why? Not because they're misinformed. Not because they're ignorant or stupid. They just don't care. Like me with my smoke. I'm saying, yeah, it might kill me or something, but. <laughs> If I really break it down in my sick head, I don't care. You don't? Let's not go there. If the 12 steps were to be uh, reduced to one step, which one would that be for you? Don't pick up the first drink. Is that one of the steps? Yes. Which one is that? First step. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable. So that was the first. That's it. Don't pick up the, if you don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk. And that's pretty simple. And that's cut and dry. You don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk. 
So that, that's the most important step. What advice would you give to young people who are addicted to alcohol? Who are addicted? Yes. Well, I'll give them the, uh, the, this advice. If you're having a problem with it now at this age, as a very young person, if you have the disease of addiction or alcoholism, it's not going to get any better. If you continue to do it, your life is only going to get more unmanageable and more worse. You're going to face more tragedies in your life because that's what the disease does of alcoholism and addiction. How do a young person, somebody who just um, started to drink, are able to know that they are becoming addicted? Usually people who are social drinkers don't get DWIs because you're abusing it, you're drinking too much, and you're driving. That's now you're breaking the law, number one. Number two, it's going to ruin every relationship you ever had when you look at it. It's going to, you know, kind of, that's going to kind of crash and burn after a while. It, it control, you know, it don't, we really don't have a number on how many marriages this must have ruined and everything else. And that it don't get better. It don't get better. How would you recognize it? Because when you're getting in, in, in different kinds of troubles, and your life is not, you know, and people don't want nothing to do with you no more. It's got to be you. And if it's not you, it's the drinking that you're doing or the drugging that you're doing. It's making all these things uh, crash and burn. Right. You're saying that um, alcohol, the, the first effects will be relationships, will ruin um, yep. a lot of relationships. Oh, yeah. Why is addiction a disease, in your opinion? The doctor's opinion. Uh, Dr. Silkler, when he wrote it, why, why it's a, a disease, because it does uh, play with the chemical concept of our mind. Change. It changes the endorphins and all the different things in our mind. So, you know, clinically, they proved it as, as a disease. The drugs is a mind-changing alternate substance. It changes our way of thinking. So, you know, the disease concept really comes down to, you know, it's not everybody has the disease of alcoholism and the disease of addiction. But when you, if you do, the disease concept is going to come out because where else can you, how can you explain it that anybody in their right mind would keep repeating going back to doing the same thing over and over again, looking for different results. You go, go, it's insanity. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. You mentioned before when we talked about um, addiction is the disease of craving. Mm -hmm. So it's the um, constant desire to have something to fulfill some sort no, of need. It's, no, once you pick up the drink or the, the substance, the disease of craving is there automatically. As soon as you pick it up, it's right there. So that's where the disease concept is. You're not in control. The disease is in control. You're not in control. Is that possible for somebody who has, like, quotes and quotes, the disease of addiction, become aware that they have the disease and they never pick up a drink? I don't know if it's possible. I guess it could be possible if they know that, you know, maybe... If they come from a, maybe a background of a lot of alcohol, a lot of alcoholism in their 
in their uh, families and stuff, or they've seen something very tragically happen with somebody drinking or lose a, a loved one in an accident or something, yeah, they can probably turn around and say, look, I might be in that percentage that I, I could be an alcoholic or an addict, so I can't touch it. Right. So what they do is they, they shy away from it. I'm not going there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so you're saying the history. So they are like aware of the history. They understand the that, you know, if you yeah. put your hand on the, on the fire mm-hmm. on the stove, you're going to get burnt. Okay. So they don't put the hand on the stove. That's smart, man. The disease of craving. Would you say that any type of compulsive craving is a type of addiction? I think there's some things that, you know, you can be compulsive at, but it's not an addiction. You know, you can be uh, compulsive about your hair. You know, I want my hair this way. I, I can be compulsive about my clothes and stuff. But, you know, it's not the damaging thing about being compulsive about drinking or drugging. You can compulsive about something, but it's not hindering your life. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it can that's be the key. right. It's not hindering your life. You can be compulsive about it, and I think in some ways there is good compulsion. Yeah, I agree. Compulsion of I want to look nice. I want to take care of myself. Yeah. Rather than look like a dirtbag. Okay. No, so some compulsions I think are, are, you know, good, and I think a compulsion, the compulsions that they're trying to we're trying to emphasize about is the compulsion of the alcoholism and drug addiction because it destroys our lives. Right, that's correct. Who is Christopher Tazarkus and why is he your close friend? Uh, Well, Christopher Tazarkus is somebody I met 30-something years ago. I I took a liking to him because I liked the way, you know, he carried himself. I knew he was the type of guy who would give you, you know, if he gave you his hand and gave you the trust, he was trust. You know, he was the type of guy you could trust as a friend. He has a very big uh, heart, you know. He's very, uh, like I say, very, you know, uh, giving, not just of of material thing, of himself. He will give of himself, you know, which is, is a big thing. A lot of people can give other things, you know. You can give material things that, but to give up yourself, yes. Christopher is very, you know, giving up that. And I trust him. The biggest thing we have between the both of us is, is trust. You know, I trust him with my life. You know, there's very few people I would say, you know, I don't care about my back. If I know he's behind me, so he's got my back. And, you know, I think it's mutual. He feels the same about me. And I respect him. I respect him as a man. And I respect, also respect him of how I've seen him succeed in business. I can really expect it because he did a lot of hard work to get where he is. And he didn't waver. He didn't lay down and say, ah, I'm not going to do it or no. He chugged right through it and did it, you know. And you got to respect somebody like that, you know, because, right. hey, nobody gave him anything. Nobody gave Chris anything. Right. He went out there and worked for it on his own. And that's, that's, that's a very contributing factor to any man. When you can go out there and do it on your own, and you know, you didn't need nobody to lift you up. You know, I did it, you know. And the way he handles it, it's not ego. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, you figure, I did what I had to do to get where I am. And it's not an ego thing or look at me. He still has the humanist side about him, which, which so I important. appreciate. Right. These days. Do you think that 
these times we live, um, having a best friend, a good friend like him, it's hard to find. It's really hard to happen. It's hard to happen? Yes, yes. in the world today. Yes. Why? I'm a very fortunate person. If they say if you make one or two good, good friends in your life, you make a lot. Right. I've been very fortunate. I have like three people that I trust complicitly. Chris is number one, this guy Tony, and this guy Larry Cadiz. The three of us I know because I know anytime I would need them, they'd be there. And they know anytime they need me. There's no question with that. Because, you know, I would say, you know, in life we make a lot of acquaintances, very few friends, what true friends are. True. See, a, a, a true friend takes you for what you are, the way you are. He's not looking to change you. He likes you for the person you are and what you are. But he also knows that you're his friend. You can tell him anything. And, you know, it's in a trust. It's between you, him, and God. Right. That's it. Yeah. Do you think that uh, having good friends or true friends could help um, somebody with addiction to overcome or to take the first step into uh, recovery? Definitely. My friend Chris always understood my my alcoholism. He's always been supportive of it. Tony's been the same way, and so is Larry. Larry knew me when I was a nut job in the Navy. We were in the Navy together. Tony knew me since I've been 17 years old. And he knew I was crazy. But he never turned his back on me and said, I'm not your friend because you're an alcoholic and you're getting in trouble all the time. He used to try to tell me something. Man, Tommy, slow down, man. We're only here 15 minutes, John. You're 14 double already. Slow down, you know, come on. But, you know, he was never, you know, put it this way, he never, uh, I don't know if you ever heard, you ostracized me because I was an alcoholic. Ostracized mean is what, like, they don't want nothing to do with you. Oh, you want your idea of life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were very supportive, Yeah, my friends. Yeah, so and that's very good. It's good for you because at least before you even get into the room, like they say, we want to do everything on our own. But if, if you have just a, a little bit of um, support, yeah. even family-wise too. But see, the last, it's a very funny thing. The last place we use this program is with our family. Mm. And everybody thinks it's the first, it's the last. Why? Because that's where we cause the most damage. Yeah, it makes sense. What do we want to do? I think back now because when I'm going through with my daughters, the feelings that my mother and father must have had every night that I went out. As my father and my mother used to tell me, you don't understand how I feel. I'm so scared until you come home, you're going to come home dead. Ba -ba -ba -ba. That feeling of panic. Of, you know, Is he going to make it home tonight? And not only being... An alcoholic, being a wise guy. My father told me, sooner or later, you're going to get killed. Keep hanging with these guys, you're going to get killed. You know, sooner or later, it's going to happen to you. You know, and how they felt. I had no clue of how they felt. Now I'm in the position where I'm a parent and going through with my kids that's drug addicts and stuff, and how that feeling is, that feeling of pain. And don't forget, it's, it's manifested double with me. Because I've already lost two. I already lost two children. The biggest fear I got in my life right now is to lose another one. Because I don't know if I could take it for a living. 
Wouldn't the program help if you keep closing? Yes, the program will work to a certain point until you lost a child or lost somebody like that, and I've lost too. Do you know what that feeling of pain is? has nothing to do with alcoholism. It's all separate. And the thing, the worst pain about that when you lose a child as a, as a parent is because it's against the norm. The norm is I'm supposed to bury my mother and my father. I'm not supposed to bury my kids. My kids are supposed to bury me. So it's against the cycle of life and that pain that you got. Because when you lose a child as a parent, you lose part of yourself. Part of your heart is gone forever and don't come back. And, and the hardest part about it is to dust yourself off and look at the hardest, hardest, coldest fact of reality is, and people don't want to look at it, no matter what happens, the sun comes up tomorrow and life still goes on. Would you suggest for people who have um, had uh, deep and um, such a great tragedies in their lives, alcoholics, in, um, the AA program, it's one thing, obviously the best thing for them, but also they should do some other kind yes, of treatment. I, I, uh, I went into bereavement. They have bereavement programs for people who lose their children. These groups and everybody's, you're talking to people who know the feeling that they've lost their children. And it's a bereavement association. And like I said, that one guy, he was in the program, plus he was in the bereavement that lost his wife and three kids all in one shot. This guy, Bobby, he was the one that kind of straightened me out. And said, Tommy, I know you're hating God right now. I know you're hating life. He said, but remember one thing. He said, the only thing that straightened me out was we got to remember something. When we're born, nobody stamps on our forehead that we're immune. Whatever can happen to another human being can happen to you. Right. And, you know, I look at that, yeah. You know, because right away we think of how, how could this happen to me? Right, me. Right. right. It's the me. You know, how could I happen? But you got to remember sometimes when you point your finger at somebody, you got three pointing back at you. Yeah. So it's you too. Yes. What were the happiest moments in your life? I guess one of them was when I married Patricia. Would you call it true love? You yes. Found true love. Yes. Yes. It's you no. Know, I didn't believe in that stuff. You know, oh yeah, your soulmate and all that. Uh, you know, love at first fright, love at first. Sight. I didn't believe in that stuff, but it happened to me. You know, and you know, uh, it was one of the best things that have happened to me. You know. Uh, we were married for 20, over 22 years. We were, like, together 24 years. But, you know, and uh, that was one of the best things in my, in my life. I guess one, one of the other great things was, uh, well, there was a few. You know, see my kids uh, graduate high school. You know, they made it, you know. And, that, that too, and yeah, I guess another thing, too, is probably I, got a, I reflect back on it. And, you know, it was, it was a big deal for me. It's when I made my first year of sobriety. I was about to ask. Yeah. When I made my right. first big year of sobriety, I said, oh, I did this, right. you know. Right. And it was a very happy, uh, uh, you know, time. How do you connect suffering with meaning? The connection between suffering and meaning is, you know, 
there's going to come a life, a time in life, where there is going to be some kind of suffering. Whether it's death, whether it's uh, you get sick yourself, but then the meaning of it is where you got to look at it and say, why me? And then you also got to look at the other side of the meaning, why not me? I'm a human being, it can happen to me. You know, that's how I look at suffering and meaning. And would you say also learning from suffering, lessons we've learned? Well, let me, let me tell you, one thing, what, what is it, one of the greatest motivators in the world is pain. We learn through pain sometimes. We have to experience the pain to learn sometimes. And, you know, a lot of us, it's hard because in the program, they tell you when you're a newcomer, learn to listen and listen to learn. Yes, pay attention. Yeah, because you don't know it all. And and the thing with, with the suffering, if pain is a great motivator. Sometimes you have to experience the pain to uh, to understand the road that you got to follow. Right, uh, to come to live a more meaningful to come to, life. Right, to right. come to terms with what's going on. And let's face it, pain is a great motivator. Some people don't ever change until Without. they experience the pain. Right. Uh, so would you say that most of us need some kind of suffering in order to learn like meaningful lessons in life? Well, yeah, to a limit. But, you know, you don't have to, you know, uh, it's like I tell some people in the program, you don't have to experience all everything you heard up in front of the rooms. But if you continue to drink, you'll to have to be doomed to repeat, uh, to to uh, experience all those things And uh, if you don't stop. So you can get off the elevator any way you want. So you don't have to keep saying, I got to keep spending, I have to get to the point where the pain is so critical that I can't stand, I might as well put a gun in my mouth and blow my brain. No, you don't have to get there. And that's why the program is designed. You, In other words, you have to look at the program with the 12 steps. The 12 steps it carries you up there. You got to say the elevator broken and the escalator is out of order. You have to use the steps um, to get up there. I like there. that. Never heard that way. Hmm. The elevator is broken. Yes, Galatas out of service, you got to use the steps. That's great. I never heard of that before. And when you use the steps, what is it? It's a physical thing that you got to do yourself. You got to yes. climb up the steps. One by one. One by one. Wow, wonderful. You want to get to the second floor? Use the steps. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think so many people don't learn from suffering? They suffered so much. They still don't find a way of Because meaning. that's part of the disease. The disease is the disease that keeps telling us we don't have a disease. Mm -hmm. It's a disease that tells us you're going to find a way. On your own, right? Right. You're going to find a way how to eventually, get, with all this wisdom even you're learning in the program, how you can safely pick up a drink. Don't work. What are three things about life you know for sure? The sun comes up tomorrow and life still goes on. Eventually, I'm going to die. And to love thyself, 
and to have found another person that you love that much is one of the biggest gifts in life that you can have. Loving yourself. And, and, and finding somebody that you loved unconditionally is one of the biggest gifts you can find in life. Thank you so much, Tommy. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Tommy Evans, please visit fitforjoy.org slash guests. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath and Mark Basden. Thank you for listening and bye for now.